Let me introduce our, our panel today. Um, these are great friends of mine, some of them staff members, some of them just long-standing relationships. On my far left is Gary Senna. Gary, I've known for 40 years, and uh, we're close, not only because we're friends, but because his daughter is married to my son, and so he's my in-law. Lives down the street, been a member of our church for almost 15 years, a great man. Next to him is Tiffany. Tiffany Fields, she's our pastor in worship here, and you see her all the time, but she's been with us for almost 20 years, seen all of her children grow up. She has a real heart for the people of God, and she's a great mama, raised some fabulous kids, three. Uh, two which are already grown, one which is coming up, and uh, I, I love her and her voice for our people. Next to me is my favorite panelist. <laughs> this is my son, Tellus. Yeah, just open, yeah. Uh, this is my son, Tellus. He's our youth minister and uh, really, really a very good communicator of truth and represents a second generation in a powerful way. On my right is... is uh, <laughs> yeah, say your name. Say your name. A.J. McGraw. Uh, <laughs> your second favorite panel. Your second favorite panel. <laughs> Brain, brain, brain lapse. A.J. McGraw has been with us on staff for the last three years, been a part of our church for almost a decade and a half. And uh, his wife, Michelle, and their kids are just fabulous. He's our pastor of our small groups, and he is going to be helping us in understanding perspectives on second-generation stuff. And then next to him is Miata Jones. Miata works in our dramatic arts ministry, our creative arts. She's in our social media as well as our worship and song. And so these panelists are going to help us as we discuss what it's like to build and what it's like to exist in a multicultural, multi-ethnic environment. Now, before I get into our, our panel discussion, there are a couple of things I'd like to, to define. Um, I'm going to do a little, little version of history, and then I'm also going to do a little definition of words. Um, definition of words first. Uh, and, and, and my definition is probably a little boomerish. Um, it seems that the definitions have changed quite a bit, but I'm going to go ahead and use mine and then superimpose what society today says my definitions mean. Three words, prejudice, um, bigotry, and racism. When I was growing up, prejudice simply meant that you had an, an attitude that prejudged somebody before you knew what the environment was or the person was. And prejudice can generally be fixed by information because you just had a wrong thought. So if somebody informed you, now you could be better thinking and say, oh, I didn't know. I'm sorry. I'll think better now. Bigotry is prejudice with a hatred in mind. It is, it is spiced with an ill intent. It means you've already prejudged, but you prejudged on the basis of a real maliciousness. And information cannot fix that. The only thing that can fix that is repentance, a changed heart. Racism, when I was growing up, was bigotry institutionalized. The only way you could have racism was if you took those ill intents of prejudice and then made policy on the basis of them. Now, even though that still exists today in concept, all those three things, the, the words have changed. Now it's unconscious bias has replaced uh, prejudice. Um, racism has replaced bigotry. And institutional racism has replaced racism. I understand how things change, but... As long as we're using the correct concepts and understanding what the words behind them mean, then I'm good. But if we're using concepts that we don't understand exactly what they mean, then we might apply the wrong solutions to the problem. Mm. And it's important that we know exactly what we're saying when we say what we say. Secondly, 
everybody wants to know how in the world did we get here? Um, why are African Americans so angry? Well, I get it that uh, there may be a bubble in which we live in America that makes it seem as if, as if everything's okay. Meaning, there's detente. That, that black people aren't, aren't protesting in the streets every day, all 365. That because we aren't, that everybody thinks it's fine. Because we had a black president for eight years, it's fine. Because a black man can get a CEO job at a major five, Fortune 500 country, it's, uh, company, it's fine. Because you have black teachers working in white schools, it's fine. Because you have black coaches in the NFL, three, it's fine. Because you seem to see us, white America, scattered about in positions of influence, you think it's fine. Um, but it, it, it's not fine. Detente is not peace. Detente is just a cessation of conflict. And peace means that there has been real dialogue that produces reconciliation and policies that are in line with that. And so what you're seeing now is what is lying under the surface and has been for a very, very long time. And why? Because 400 years ago, 1619, slavery started. And um, we're not quite sure. It's disputed on the Internet. I can't figure it out. But at least Virginia claims they were the first ones who, who had slavery in America. Virginia claimed, in fact, in 2007, they repented of it. The, the, the state house had a moment of apology, saying we are sorry for beginning slavery in America and that it started in the Commonwealth. And so they acknowledged that it started in Jamestown. Some other reports will come out later. Whatever it is, it seems that we live in the state. We live in the Commonwealth where this thing got started, which would make us somewhat a little bit more responsible. I'm just saying. Um, it continued on till 1863 and even beyond that, even though President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, they didn't have the internet, nor did they have texts. So folks in Texas didn't get the message. There were folks slaves for another 15 years after that. But emancipation at least was, re was, was legally uh, pronounced in 1863. But between that, you had some other stuff happening that would make you think that the finest thinkers on the planet who produced the nation that I love so much... I love this country. I'll die for it. There are five things for which I'll die. My faith, my family, my friends, my foes, and my flag. I'll die for it. Happily. Though it won't do much for me sometimes. And the long history of African Americans who have fought for their country. My parents, my dad grew up in Tuskegee, Alabama. My parents, my grandparents were... Were, were teachers at Tuskegee Institute, which is now Tuskegee Insti uh, University. And you've heard of the, the Red Tails or the Tuskegee Airmen, fabulous pilots that guarded the bombers that went to Germany and back. Uh, they didn't lose one during the entire tenure of their guardianship. Not one bomber was lost. They're the only guardian uh, fighter pilots that can say that. Amazing men of courage. Yet, nobody honored them when they got back. It took 40 years for somebody to say thank you. It's been a long line of people who have served this country and never received anything back. So we get to somewhere around eight, 1787. Independence has happened, Revolutionary War, now we get to the Constitution. And in the Constitution, there's not much mention of us. There is a mention, but it's not very respectful. As a result of us being here, they had to at least acknowledge what we were. 
um, but we were slaves, and we were considered property, therefore three-fifths of a person. We weren't even acknowledged with the dignity of being human, property. These are my ancestors. Now I want you to know, those of you who call me pastor, I love you. There's nobody who prays for you more, loves you more than me. Maybe there are people who are equal, but nobody more than me. And I'm compassionate about wherever you are and whoever you are. And I treat you all exactly the same. But I have a heritage. I have a, a history that is real, but sometimes I don't share it with the, the amount of passion that I could because I care about people. Right. I want to I make sure they hear well. Now, there was a time, there was a time when I, I didn't care whether you heard. I was, I was a verbal version of a, of a, of a flamethrower. And I was mad about things that were happening in our country in the 90s. Ethnically, really not happy. And uh, I thought I'd educate our church on it. About split it. About split it. Then I'd take my message other places and have about the same result. Places to which I went, preached the, the message of, of how we need to change and what's wrong with our nation, and I never got invited back. I had people walk out on my sermons. And I thought, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm telling truth. There's nothing I'm not saying. It's not right. He said, yeah, you're right. Now you can be defined by this one thing if you want for the rest of your ministry. Or you can wait for me to give you an open door so that the ears will be able to hear and I'll provide. And you can do other things that are really important to my kingdom as well because you're not just a social activist. You're a pastor. You're a shepherd of my people. I said, okay. So I, I didn't change my truth. I just changed my rhetoric. I changed how I said what I said and, and the emotions that were associated with it. As a result, I became the nicest version of an agent of reconciliation you can find. Now, healed too. On the inside, I'm whole. There's no smell of smoke of the things through which I went when I was growing up, nor those of my parents. I have the marks. I bear the marks, like Paul said. I bear the marks of Christ. I bear the marks of racism, but I don't, I don't have the smoke of fire through which I went. I really manifest, as best I can, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ every place I go. And many people confuse that with being dispassionate about my past. I'm not. I'm just healed. Mm. Yeah. 1787, Constitution is written. We're kind of not thought much about. And then... Dred Scott decision in, in 18, excuse me, 1787 Constitution, 1857 Dred Scott decision. We actually had to go to sue the United States of America in order to be classified as citizens and people. And in the Dred Scott decision in 1857, we lost. They said, no, slaves nor their descendants can ever be described or categorized as citizens of America. Um... Then we get to the Civil War, and you get the Emancipation Proclamation. You get to, after that, Plessy versus Ferguson, which was a, a decision that <laughs> didn't allow us the privilege of being integrated with society. It said that separate but equal was really good. We wanted to be integrated with everybody. Okay, if you don't want us to be citizens, okay, we get it. But we want it to be integrated with anybody. He said, no. Now, in between the, the Emancipation Proclamation and Plessy versus Ferguson, 
Congress tried to get it right, and they added some amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. 13th Amendment said slaves are free. 14th Amendment said slaves are now citizens. Free slaves are now citizens. Yay! 15th Amendment said we can vote. Yay! But remember, we had to fight for those. They didn't come to us. We weren't born into that. We had to fight for what everybody else had. And it's been an uphill fight all the way. Everybody thinks, well, aren't you all... Aren't you all equal? I mean, haven't you been? If, if, if you, from, from, a, from the dominant population's perspective, it seems like we start at the same line and we ought to finish it at the, at the same line if it's a race. 100 yards, and we hope we tie because we're equal. The problem is the dominant population, white folk get to start at the starting line. We have to run 200 yards to tie you. Because we have to fight for everything we get. In 1921, there was a horrible incident in Greenwood, Tulsa. Greenwood is kind of a suburb of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Greenwood, Oklahoma. It was one of the most prosperous African-American communities in the country. In fact, it was called the Black Wall Street. A man was accused of having a relationship, African-American, accused of having a relationship with a white female. A mob came with the police authority and with the civil authorities from Tulsa. And they burned down the city. They killed 300 people, massacred them, maimed many more. And nobody was ever charged. Not just convicted, nobody was ever charged. Black businesses, homes, tried to get insurance money from the moment, went to their insurance company, and the insurance said, sorry, riots are not covered. And then you had Jim Crow laws after the Civil War with Reconstruction. The separate but equal thing with Plessy versus Ferguson allowed Jim Crow laws to proliferate all throughout the South, where you had black bathrooms, white bathrooms. You had places where black people could sit on trains, places where white people could sit on trains. My mother and I and our, kid, our, our family would travel from uh, Kansas City to St. Louis to see my, my grandparents. My mother grew up in St. Louis. We were in Kansas City. And we'd always have to sit in the back of the train. Um, Jim Crow laws kept black people in a state of, of continual second-class status. There was no such thing as separate but equal. It was separate and unequal because resources did not flow from the federal government like they flowed to the white community to ours. We were continually impoverished. And then you had a thing called the... By the way, those didn't end until about 1963. They didn't end until 1963. And then you had the, the experiment in Tuskegee. All I'm doing is giving you a thumbnail sketch just a scratch and sniff. This history could go on for hours and hours. In 1932 to 1972, the federal government conducted an experiment at Tuskegee Institute upon people, of, of, of men of African-American persuasion that had a disease. A disease would ultimately disable them and kill them. And they said they were trying to help them 
heal them and use this study as, a, as kind of a template for what they could do for other people later. For 50 years they did the study. But all they gave to the, to the people who were infirmed were placebos. Even when penicillin came into being to try to heal their disease and it was effective to do so, they withheld it from them and they used them as guinea pigs. That was the federal government. The version of the CDC today, they approved that. Now, this isn't, this isn't a lesson simply to try to figure out how in the world to make people feel bad. This is simply a lesson to help you understand how we got here and why today when black people see the disproportionate amount of violence from police begun to be, um, in, uh, begun to be used on African Americans and why African Americans are saying, please, stop. There's a lot of history to this. We are 2.5 times more likely to have encounters with police officers that are violent than white people are. We are five times more likely to be incarcerated. 33% of the people who are in prison are African American. We only make up 12%. Please do not interpret that somehow black folk are more criminal in their orientation than white. We're all sons of Adam. We just happen to be in more disadvantaged environments. And those environments have been in many ways constructed that way. So, what you're seeing is pain. You're seeing pain. And hear me, pain rarely uses the proper exit doors to get out. It hardly ever uses the most, the most accepted ways to, to, to release itself. Only the mature, the most mature can take the hurt on the inside and take it out the right way. Everybody else, it just comes. And this is what happens. And so this is how we got here. And so we're going to have a discussion about how people felt about what they saw here in the last couple of weeks. And hopefully it will stimulate how you can have discussions in your world about what it's like to, to bring these topics to a productive end. Now you may not be able to agree upon everything, but our unity is not based on our agreement. Come on, sir. You hear me. Yes. I walk with a lot of people with whom I don't agree. I know how to do that. Please do not imply that those are folks on my staff. I'm just letting you know. I know how to do that. To love people even when they can't get to the place where I think they need to be in their thinking. I know how to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Not because bread is so skilled, but because God has pressed me into figuring out how to make that happen because he has made me a lover of his church and the community that he has called me to serve. So simply because somebody doesn't agree with me doesn't mean I'm walking away. It means I walk with deeper. I figure out how to get in their life more and help them come to a place that they cannot on their own. This is what reconciliation looks like to me. And why do I have this attitude? Because it's the only way I got right with God. I surely don't agree with him about much of anything. I work really hard at it, though. And yet he chose to call me 
Bring me close. Put me in the family. Not just make me a servant. Make me a son. Give me an inheritance. Let me use his name, even though I, I don't bring a whole lot of honor to it sometimes. He identifies with me fully, even though I may not identify with him. And all that he has done for me, I choose to do for others. This is how we keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in this house. So, let's start our talk. <laughs> Why? <laughs> let's, let's start our talk. Why? Just keep going. Why? Pastor Gary, when you saw the events transpire over the last week, um, tell me, what were you thinking? I've always... T- kind of label myself a check-in-the-box, non-racist, non-prejudiced person. Black friend, black son-in-law, served as a police chaplain for 25 years with African-American chiefs, every nationality in that world. And I realized in the last six months, particularly the last month, it's given me an out card to not face the embarrassment and the shame of how little I know about the African-American journey. And I'm just so thankful for your son, my daughter, who have graciously, in a very kind way, (laughs) called me to task for the way I look at life and my lack of compassion and my lack of really understanding the historical narrative, Brett. Hmm. It's powerful, powerful. Anybody else? How did it affect you, Miata? I'm probably gonna cry. Um, I saw my cousins and I saw my friends (laughs) Um, and there was an anger and a sadness and a fear that could this happen to someone I know next it's not that distant from my reality. Um, Particularly George Floyd, I watched the video, which was probably a terrible idea, but you watch a man lose his life on camera. I've never seen someone lose their life in real life, other than in movies that you know are dramatic. But um, it was jarring. Like the casualness surrounding it that you can take someone's life and there be no emotion, no thought, no care. Um, and that was hard. That was very hard to watch. Very. With me, I think I had a similar response. Um, I saw the video on my timeline and immediately wanted to disregard it because um, it made me angry and upset, and so I swiped away um, because my first thought was not again and in hopes that me swiping it away would make it go away. Um, and I think with the context that you just gave, Dad, about what has happened, I think it opens up old wounds some not so old and some old as slavery and produces in me something that made me really, really frustrated 
with my experience and what could happen to me um, and really wanted to avoid it altogether, to let it just pass by. Um, and it took me a few days to actually come to terms to what that video meant for me and who that could be and who that was. Um, and it really felt like it was opening up wounds um, in me that I hadn't learned to deal with and process on my own before I could actually have productive conversations with other people, to be honest. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's very, very hard to... Um, it's hard for white people to address black people. It's like one of these... Uh, I, I, I don't know what... How, how you feel... Um, articulated, Pastor. Yeah, yeah. I've, that's the thing I've been thinking about the most this whole past two weeks. Um, when I saw this, I came face to face with my privilege, which is that I can choose to distance myself from it. And, and for the years that this has occurred, and the number of times we've had to take time out of a Sunday morning service to address this and help us heal, I have uh, not known how to confront it. And it's been based in fear that I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to misspeak. I don't want to assume that I know how it feels and have people take me the wrong way and then, and then reject me. And so my fear has kept me silent on these specific issues. But as I watched George Floyd, it was like scales falling from my eyes. And I think in our nation, that's part of what is happening to so many people that look like me is we cannot ignore it anymore. And it's, and it's not even ignoring it. It's, it's not knowing what to do in response to it. And so as I navigated this and have spoken with my friends to help unpack it, I have come to the point that if I'm going to be misunderstood, if I'm going to misspeak, if I'm going to be hated for the position I take, let it be the position of justice yes. and of equality and against racism. Let it not be silence yes. that my friends and family members would say, man, you never speak up. Do you agree with that? Do you not care about that? Are you just ignorant to it? And so if I'm going to have people watch this, and I'm sure I'll misspeak today and say something that was a little bit insensitive, not intentionally, I would rather be on the side. I, I'm trying to add a voice to the conversation. And a really good friend of mine told me, as I said, what do I say to somebody? You know, like, I, I, I want to check in, but what do I say? And they said, well, imagine they lost a family member and they're grieving. What do you say to somebody when they lose a family member, somebody in the small groups, a parent passes and you call them, what do you say? And that for me framed it. I don't need to, I'm not, I don't have the answer to systematic racism in America. And a phone call to Miata is not going to, hey, Miata, I've got the answer. That's not what I'm going to, what I'm going to do is grieve with her and with Tellus and let them know that I'm, I'm so sorry. And, and I'm here for you. And, and I'm learning to empathize with it. And I think for white people, what we've got to do, we've got to learn to look at it and not look away from it and let it deep in your soul, in your stomach, in your gut, change who you are. And that's going to come by the experience of grief, of empathy, of hearing the legacy that Pastor Brett just laid out and not just glossing that over. This whole week, every night I've been staying up late watching documentaries and movies, trying to educate myself to feel this at a deeper level, to make this the reality that I'm in so that I can better empathize, so that I can better partner with the solution, whatever that is, whatever that I can contribute. Thank you, Pastor AJ. And again, 
forgive me for forgetting your name. I just stupid. Um, when it when it comes to being educated uh, in re- relationship to movies, they're really good ones. Uh, Just Mercy, wow, wow. Harriet, wow. Brian Banks, wow. Twelve Years a Slave, wow. Amistad, wow. Uh, the that's just a few. The roots go back to, to, to boomer generation, uh, 70s. Wow. Read the book, Roots. Wow. They'll help you. They'll help you. And that response helps us because it helps all of us heal. Pastor Tiffany, you've got three African-American kids in your house. Talk to me about the conversations you have with them and what it looks like to deal with these issues? I tell them, whatever you do when you leave this house, make sure you come back home. (laughs) Um, I don't know how many of my white friends that have white kids tell their kids, when you leave, they're 25, 25-year-old, when you leave, whatever you do when you're out there, come back home. Whatever the problem is, whatever happens in the street, I'll go fight for you. I'll, get, I'll pay an attorney and we will go fight for you, but I need you to come home. And it's so sad. I imagine somebody said that to George Floyd. And I think that for so many, um, to piggyback on what AJ said, it's like we, not me personally, but we, the community, the white community, look at that and say, well, he must have done something before that. Or he must have committed a crime. If he didn't commit a crime, then the police wouldn't have come. I've heard these hurtful comments. You know how many times police are dispatched? Not for a crime committed. For many things the people call the police. And how dare us or any of us say, well, if he didn't, then they wouldn't. No man deserves to have his life taken on the asphalt, on the hot asphalt of the street in the middle of the day with bystanders. And you want to know what I, <laughs> what, what I said when I saw it? I want to go fight somebody. And if I was the bystander, I'd be doing whatever I could to get that. Like, that's what rises up in me. And all the movies that you just named, it's been really, it's really hard for me to watch those because I feel like I can't do anything right now to fix the injustice that I'm watching. So let me not watch it. But when moments like this come, there's something we can do. We can talk to our white friends about the privilege that you have to raise your voice for somebody who is not heard, who is not seen. And I think for us, it's so important that we make sure that we represent Christ and his love to everybody and grieve with those who grieve and mourn with those who mourn and say, I am so sorry. I remember feeling a moment for the first time in my life when I had my kids when I was 20 and walking into a grocery store and being treated differently because I had biracial kids and, you know, people pulling come over here, don't talk to them. And at first I was like, oh, that's just, maybe they, 
but then it happens over and over and over and over again, and then you start to get it. And I pray that we wouldn't have to have firsthand experience to get it, that we would learn from other people and learn from history and make a difference and change. So again, I want to say I'm so sorry on behalf of people that look like me to all the brown and black people that have been oppressed. I'm sorry, and we're going to fight. We're going to do whatever we can to lift our voice, to trust God, and to see reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation happen in the earth. Thank you, Tiffany. And I, to, to, to kind of dovetail that, the interesting thing about these protests, um, and I've been at some, to minister to the people who were there, to minister to the law enforcement, to hand out water, to pray, to be the last one who leaves because the last protester deserves my prayer, Um, to be there when there were contrary forces, white supremacists that were on site and they wanted to stir up things and they were armed and and brandished their their arms. Um, It was a privilege of mine to, to pray through the entire moment. But what I noticed was this, is that most of the people who were out there were white. I, 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 that didn't happen in the 60s. You had a smattering of, of folks from the dominant population that helped in the civil rights movement. But it wasn't en masse. And I woke up on, on Friday morning, first, time, first day, I'd been happy in about three weeks. I've been crying the entire time. I woke up with a degree of joy because I realized white people like me. I said, my God in heaven, what, has, what sea change has occurred here? White people like me. They don't just like me. They're standing in front of, 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 of people who look like me in the protest to defend me against those who would want to be assaulting. I said, where'd this come from? I, I'm shocked, listen to me, at what God is doing. Now, that's a sad thing when you can be shocked at what God is doing because this is, this is that for which we have prayed for decades that unity and harmony would be that which would be reflected in our community rather than division. So I'm sorry, Lord, for my my being surprised. But something is happening that's good in the midst of the difficult. Something is happening that's good. And I do not associate that good. I do not disassociate that good from the prayers that have been prayed and the efforts that people like us have done to try to salt the environment of corruption and bring light to the environments of darkness about what it looks like to be a unified people, a reconciled people. And I'm grateful for your participation. I really, really am. So, Pastor Gary, where do you think we go from here? You know, Joe and Elizabeth, your son, they were in my house, I guess it was a couple months ago, and Joe went out for a morning run. The thought never crossed my mind. What's going through his head? With all the recent events, I, I thought, gosh, what, what if something happened to Joe in my predominantly white neighborhood? And I realized how easy it has been for me to disengage, to AJ's point, to disengage emotionally. And when I made it real and I engaged emotionally, that became a seismic shift in my soul, Brett. Because no longer do I have the luxury of being able to sit on the sideline and say, oh, black friend, oh, black son-in-law, oh, I work with me out, oh, how wonderful, I'm, I'm off the hook. Right. But it hurts to engage emotionally, and it's much more painful not to. 
I think that's just the, 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 the first step is that. And again, I think that's what so many people are feeling in this season. Michelle and I have talked about it too as we discussed the video. I mean, the, the, the two men that I am in covenant relationship with, we have a group chat called Commissioned Men because we are men on commission. It's me and these two guys, and both of them are uh, bigger than me, taller than me, stronger than me, and they're both African-American. And, and Michelle and I just sit and we weep imagining not Big George, but my friends. Because there's no, there's no difference between them, right? Any misunderstanding on any day, and that has been the thing for me that has kept me weeping all week whenever we discuss this, is just like you started. And that's for me my first step. Because now I am, I am changed. I can't, you, again, once you look, you can't look away, you can't go back, you can't undo it. But that begins the process of healing internally, which then allows us to begin aiding in whatever the process of restoration looks like, of making this right. And on the other side, I learned this from you, maybe you can speak to this, but on the other side of restoration, I believe, comes reconciliation. Because it's not just, you know, I'm sorry, we're all good now, right? No, 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 there's, there's, there's work to be done here. It's, it's, you, we can't just look at the problem and say, oh, I now see a problem. We're good? No, 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 no. The, the, we're talking 400 years of this affecting every part of our culture. We've got to now do some work yes. to rectify that. And, and listen, people have been working at this for a long time, so it's not like we're coming in and we're going to save the day here. There's n- no, we're, I'm going to do whatever little bit I can to learn from those who've gone before me, to support whatever it is that they're doing, to be a, be a part of the solutions. It's beautiful. And <clears throat> that kind of effort, is important. The, the, the immediacy of the environment makes, it think, makes us think, it can be kind of deceiving, makes us think that we're fixing it. All we've done is address it. It's just been uncovered. It's going to take us years to be able to repair. Years. And it's going to take a lot of sacrifice and understanding, but we've got to work at it to make it go. Um, let me go back to something that Tiffany said. As an African-American, I accept your apology. Thank you for your sensitivity and your understanding and your heart. And I'm privileged to be able to work with the people that I have. You have an in-law like Gary, be able to work with Pastor AJ and all the others. We got a special thing here, really special. Miata, help me. What does it look like for the African-American to respond to the white person? Wow. Easy question. (laughs) Um, I'll start by saying that this week, the past couple of weeks have been really hard for me. Um, Like Pastor Brett said, when there's pain, when there's anger, it never finds the right door channel to come out. So um, there's a a vigilante type thing. There's a vengeance. There's a type thing that comes out. And it's been really helpful for me to get in the presence of God, um, to seek God's presence, to seek his face, to see um, what he wants me to do and find healing there for the, for the wounds that, like Pastor Tella said, I didn't even realize when these incidents come up, you don't realize your own history with racism. 
And so when it comes up, it's almost like a re-traumatization of yourself. Um, And I think acknowledging the trauma, finding healing in God's presence for the trauma. um, And yeah, the only way that there can be healing is from God. I 100% believe that. There is no other place I've, we have seen on the internet in the world. There's so many truths. There's so many paths. Um, and the only path that leads to healing, restoration, and reconciliation is found in Christ. It's the only thing. Because once you get justice, what are you going to do? Good. There's still brokenness. Yeah. There's still fear. There's Good. still... Good a sense of uh, the unknown, the only thing that takes you past justice into healing, into restoration, into reconciliation is the cross of Christ. It's beautiful, beautiful. And Miata brings up such a great point. Um, the focus of our society and much of the conversation is what white America has done and what white America needs to do in order to fix the problem. And I'm not trying to take the focus off that. But I am trying to make sure that everybody understands that God has a dual focus. Whenever there are two involved in a relationship, generally speaking, both have a responsibility to help get it right. Not both of them can be at, 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 uh, wrong. Not both of them are wrong. Both of them are not flawed in the, in the orientation of what happened in the offense. But both of them have to be engaged to get it right. And so black people, let's get healed. We can't always lead with our pain. It's, if, if you knew anybody that lived in pain and constantly expressed it, or it was just below the surface all the time and it only took one little spark for things to blow up, you'd think, something's wrong. Tough to be around that person. And we can't live like that. It doesn't mean we ignore our pain. It means we find a way to release our pain and do it productively. But we have to find healing in God in order for us to live well. And then be the agents of reconciliation. God was the most offended in the universe. He knew the people that offended him most couldn't get to him. They didn't know how to get to him. They didn't have the steps to get to him. They didn't know what to say to get to him. They didn't know what it meant to even have a conversation with him. And so he said, let me fix that. I'm coming down to you. I'm hurting. You've offended me more than you've offended anybody else. But I'm coming to you. And I'm going to sacrifice so you can get to me. That's the way I live. And I'm praying, African Americans, that you would employ that strategy, get healed first, and then become an agent of reconciliation second. That as you have received reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, so now give it. That's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. Can I say something really quick? You may. (laughs) Um, While I was thinking, praying about this, I just distinctly remember God saying, you can be angry, and anger produces bitterness, and it warps your soul if you live there. It it only produces what the seed is. And I don't want to live with a warped soul. I want to live with a healthy soul, and that's only found in Christ. It's beautiful. Thank you very much. Yeah, say yes. something too. Um, just to piggyback, I was talking with Miata this week, and we were talking about um, how this is a spiritual stronghold in our nation. Like this is something that can only be brought down. This 
systemic racism can only be broken the back of it by prayer, by fasting, by getting in your prayer closet, especially those who look like me, and fighting. Because the enemy has kept this stronghold, and we, as the people of God, practically there's a lot of things we can do, and we've talked about those, but in the spirit, we have to fight, and we have to fight against the principalities and the powers of the air, because that's our job as Christians. Beautiful, beautiful. And fighting doesn't mean we fight against people. It means we fight in prayer. We battle some things, and and generally, sometimes that's our own soul. God, make me right. Make me right. Help me get right before I can help anybody else get right. And then we live right. We're loving people, even in the midst of our difficulty. We're finding enemies to make friends. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, you haven't done anything different than anybody who doesn't know anything about who I am or who God is. I tell you, be like your heavenly father. Matthew chapter 5, love your enemies. That's who we are to be. And this is what it means to battle. To battle in such a way that we are, we are willing to lay down our lives for our enemies. Pastor, tell us comments. Yeah, what I've been thinking this whole time is how desperately we need compassion. How we sometimes gloss over compassion just to criticize and mm-hmm. to see a headline and then judge somebody's heart and to see people either rioting or protesting and say, how dare they? And almost judge their grief in the way that they grieve. Mm. As to say that, I love you, but not too closely. Um, I think Christians are, well, I know Christians, Jesus said that they'll know us by the love we have for one another. And I feel like we have all been saying, oh, we need to love, we need to love. Um, But the type of love that I'm looking for, and I think the community, not just African-American community, but the world right now is looking for is not a love that keeps somebody at arm's length that says, I'll respect your opinion, but don't bring it too close to me. I'll respect your experience, but keep your experience where Mm -hmm. your experience Mm is. But to, I I want you to love me closely. I want you to love me when I hurt. And I want you to love me in the places where it's hard to love me. Um, Not just saying, hey, I'm going to love you. And by the way, I have your answer. But what Pastor Edgy was saying, like, I'm not looking for an answer. I, I don't, I, I know my answer. My answer is not in Jesus. I'm looking for someone to, like the word says, to weep with me when I weep and rejoice with me when I rejoice. It's beautiful. And I think right now what I'm longing for right now is more compassion um, in the body of Christ. And we've been talking about reconciliation. And just to be honest, like, if, if the church is claiming to have the answer— and we aren't the ones who are displaying the fruit, right. yeah. then no one should listen Come to on. us. That's exactly right. The, 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 the church is saying right now that we, you should follow our lead, yeah. but we are some of the most segregated, Mm-mm-mm. and we are living from the, the, keeping people at, at arms. Like if, and I just see Jesus saying that like Jesus wasn't trying to change people's opinions before he loved them. That's right. And we are trying so desperately to say, agree with me, and then we can have a conversation. Agree with me, and then I'll love you. And, and I want the church to be the place. I know that Jesus has established the church to be the place where reconciliation should happen first. Yep. That this should be the place where the fruit comes out of and the world sees it and says, I want that. Yes. And I, I, if I can just be honest, I don't see a lot of people looking at the church saying, I want that. And I think it has to start with us. Um, Powerful. Yeah. And, and that's, I keep, I keep saying that's why it's important for us to be us. That's why we have made this one of the cornerstones of our ministry. 
Now, having said that, as I close, because we got to stop, simply because we're on this today doesn't mean we're going to now make this the project, the emphasis of our entire church life. It means we are now facing the issue head on. I was on, uh, if you, you remember when we used to fly in airplanes? <laughs> well, there used to be these seat back things. Yeah, it last, you know, right about the time of Adam. There were these seat back things, and, and they had screens, and you could go ahead and look at the flight, pan, flight pattern or the flight, pan, <laughs> flight planned, and you could see the curve or the arc or the, the, the method in which the, the, the plane was going, the direction. And I watched it, and there would be a little icon of a plane on the flight plan. And the icon of the plane would let you know where you were in, in relationship to where you came from and how close you were to your destination. But sometimes the, the, the plane would be crooked. Literally, the plane would be this way, and the flight plan would be this way. I think it's on the screen now. And I went to the pilot afterward. I said, was the screen broken? Why was the plane this way and the flight plan this way? He said, well... We had a northerly wind, and that northerly wind, if we had stayed like this in our direction, would have pushed us to the south. And so the only way we could continue to go in this direction is if we pointed our nose toward the opposing wind, and we flew sideways. So they did not stop. Their, their aim in getting to their destination, we're still going to plant churches. We're still going to care for people. We're still going to disciple folks. We're still going to reach people with evangelism. We're going to serve the community. We're going to see parents healed. We're going to see kids right. We're going to do all the things that the church ought to do. We're, we're, we're going to fly sideways, though. We're going to face this opposition while we get to our destination. So we're not all about this, but we are about this. Are you with me? Secondly, I close with this. What happens when you get to a conversation? We all love one another. I mean, we're all on the same page. It's really great. And this, this conversation was not scripted. We talked about the big things, but we didn't say, you say that, you say that, you say that. This is your staff. This is the health of the people that serve you well. You ought to be encouraged every day. Amen. Having said that, you may have conversations where people don't give the right answers. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, said this. When I came to Troas, verse 12, I came to Troas and there was an open door for me to minister the gospel. It was amazing. But I had no rest in my spirit because I couldn't find Titus. He was supposed to be there. And so taking my leave, I went on to Macedonia. But I realized that even though I was disappointed that Titus was not there, it was God who was leading me in triumph. And he was allowing me to manifest the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. What happens when you arrive at a spot and you're expecting people to be at the same spot, but they're not there? You're hoping. You've been traveling with them. There, there, there's a rendezvous point, And you've arrived. You're there. But spiritually, they're not. Sociologically, they're not. And when you find out when they're not there, boy, disappointment arises in your soul. You get anger. How come you, what do you mean you just now are figuring this out? Yeah. A man was murdered, but another one was murdered. We saw on TV, chased down like a deer. You can't even chase deer in a car, but they were chasing this man down. He was murdered. That didn't spark your attention. Breonna Taylor didn't spark. Eric Garner was choked out a lot. Let me get less emotional. Eric Garner was choked out a long time ago. Why, did, why weren't you 
what? What about this? We find many times that people aren't where we would like them to be. What do we do with our disappointment? Do we, do we live in it? Do we live in it? Whether it's a white person who wants a black person to be at a, a spot or it's a black person who wants a white person, what do you do with the disappointment? You do this. You say, meet me at the cross. Yeah, right. Okay? You're not where I want you to be, but I'm, come with me. Let's get to the cross and figure out how we can get there together because my goal is to manifest the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, not to give the aroma of bitterness and disappointment. Yeah. And so every day, I find people who are not where they are supposed to be. I was hoping I'd rendezvous, rendezvous with them, but they didn't show. And I'm looking at them thinking, how come you didn't get it? And rather than being disappointed for the rest of my life, and then ostracizing them, I choose to manifest the aroma of the cross and say, come with me, let me help you. I can give you some pointers on this. We can walk together if you're willing. Be a reconciler like that and allow the Holy Spirit to do some things that are unusually great in your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I love you. I thank you for your goodness. Would you please inspire us as a people to be the kind of people we ought to be? If there's anybody this morning uh, who is yet to give their heart to Christ, here's a great opportunity to do so. Maybe you've made a decision in the past, but your life doesn't look anything like what a believer's ought to be. And you want to make a change. If you fit in either of those categories, raise your hand there or just check the little box in the chat that says, I want to give my heart to Christ. And pray this prayer with me. Say, Father in heaven, forgive me. I am sorry for the way I've lived. I choose to turn away from everything I know to be sin and to follow you with all of my heart. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for giving me the privilege of calling Jesus the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, there's a little box down there. Check it. And then it will come, another box will come and say, somebody needs to contact me. You want to be contacted? Check that box as well. And somebody will help you understand the decision you made. If you want prayer, go up to the top of the chat and say, somebody connect me with a pastor for prayer. And God will <clears throat> help you through the people that we assign to get you where you want to be. Church, thank you very much for enduring with this moment. I know it's been a little long, but I hope it was helpful for you today. And uh, I pray peace and health over our community. Please join with us on Tuesday if you can. I realize we're starting to get back to work. Everybody, all the roads now have a little traffic. Ah, that, that, that's unusual. People are getting back to work. I get it. But if you can come, great. If you can work at home and, and, and you know you have to be employed, you work at home, just go ahead and uh, stream us online on Tuesday and uh, bless you.